All right, good morning. Doing communion today, so I have a little bit different schedule. <clears throat> but uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's open up to Acts uh, chapter 10. We're going to attempt something this morning that may have never been done before at Ocean Beach Christian Fellowship, and that is get through a whole chapter. So, <laughs> I feel like we can, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I'm pretty sure this is the context, and so we'll get stuck in and see what we can do. Please, uh, let's flip over to Acts chapter 10, and uh, the passage that we're going to read about is Peter going down to uh, Caesarea and talking to Cornelius, a uh, Italian centurion for the Roman army, and uh, it's, it's all one account, and so it's, I think, valuable to keep it together and go through it together, but what's so cool about it is it shows uh, in a very stark way how God works uh, so often in His church and among His people, that He's working on both sides of the equation. Um, and it also shows that uh, perhaps God's not so much interested in efficiency as He is in change and in uh, encouraging and working things out in our lives. So uh, we're not going to read the whole thing all at once because it's about uh, 48 verses, uh, but we'll read some chunks and then we'll kind of go back through it and look at some points. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 1, he says there, remember this is Luke writing to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God about, uh, excuse me, about the ninth hour of the day. So that's about three o'clock. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he uh, stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have been, uh, excuse me, have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and, uh, and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we'll stop there and we'll just kind of begin to look at this. So what's happened is, remember Peter has uh, come from Lydda, he's now in Joppa, he's staying with this, uh, at a, uh, ironically his name is Simon, and he's staying with a person named Simon, uh, and the guy's a tanner, so he tans hides. And he's there, and he, apparently he's there for a little while, he's praying, we don't know necessarily how much time, has, it's uh, many days, if you look at the last verse of chapter 9, and he stayed in Joppa for many days. So however long that is, Simon uh, Peter has been there for many days, he's hanging out with him, um, and probably I think it's safe to assume that he's ministering to people in Joppa, preaching the gospel, these type of things. So anyway, back at the ranch, as it were, in Caesarea, about a day's walk away, uh, there is another person, and it's a centurion. Now remember, this is a Roman centurion. Uh, Rome began to occupy Israel in 63 uh, B.C. So uh, he's been there for probably about, well, not necessarily this man, but Rome has been there for a little over 70 years at this point, and he is uh, a righteous man. So interestingly enough, he is from an Italian cohort. We read that. So he's from Italy. He's a native Roman, as it were. 
and he has been moved forward as a centurion, as an occupying force to live in Israel. So as you can imagine, Israelis probably don't like the Romans very much. Remember Simon the Zealot? There's another Simon, one of the people that Jesus called, and he was Simon Zealotus. That, is, uh, that was a whole group of people dedicated, Jewish people dedicated to assassinating Romans. That's what they did. They were known, Simon the Zealot was, would have been trained essentially in uh, subterfuge, in being able, to, they, they, they typically wore long cloaks, they had long daggers, and in any kind of a crowd or a mix-up, they would stand next to a Roman guard, pull out their long dagger and shank them through their cloak and then put it in and walk away. And they would try to find the, between the breastplate and the back, the, in between the ribs. So there were like many, many people who did not like the Romans uh, because they were a conquering force. So anyway, they've been occupying Drew, or Israel now for about 70 years. He is one of, most likely not one of the ones that was there for the conquering because it would have been 70 plus years ago, but is there as an occupational force. He is a centurion, so that means that he is over 100 men. And you can look up on the internet, it's, internet, it's kind of fascinating uh, if you like history, uh, how the Romans divided up, uh, you know, cohorts and, and groups of 100 and 1,000 and 4,000 and so forth. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons they were so uh, efficient at conquering was because they had some of the most advanced warfare tactics up to that point, as far as how they marched, their shields, how they used them, the short sword, all that uh, was kind of Roman technology. So anyway, this, is, this guy is... Um, he is over uh, 100 soldiers. Also, just to kind of give some history, uh, the sign-up, like you know how in our military you can do like one, two, eight, you know, years kind of a sign-up plan. The Roman army, it was a 25-year enlistment. And if you lasted for 25 years, you were given ro uh, land in Rome and a pension. And so that's why many, many incredibly poor people, including the lands that they conquered, would decide to go into the Roman army because if you did last those 25 years, you essentially gained what would be riches uh, beyond most people's wild imagination. In a time where most people didn't own land, most people maybe had two sets of clothes, you actually would get to go farm your own property given to you by the Roman government in your name and then receive a pension from Rome for the rest of your life for your family. So this guy is, uh, centurions, as we read in the scriptures, they uh, made decent money, uh, and he is a giving person. So we kind of get a look at what kind of person he is. We know his background. So he's a centurion of what was known in the Italian cohort. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people. And he prayed continually to God. So most likely, Judaism hadn't really spread to Italy. Uh, we're not saying that it couldn't have been there, but Italy wasn't a hotbed for Judaism uh, at this time in history or, or ever in history. So most likely this person had come from Rome and had converted to Judaism as when he got to uh, Israel. We don't know that. It's just something that we can probably assume. But he's a person, he fears God. He's not just somebody who's giving alms and, and the works are good, and we'll actually talk about that later. But he's someone who feared God. He had grown to have a respect and an honor and an understanding of the Jewish God, of the God of gods, the Lord of lords. Remember what he comes from. He comes from polytheism, right? When you go back to Rome and you look at polytheism, meaning many gods, and you have all the, the, the Greek gods that kind of got converted to Roman gods, they're very similar, 
and all that kind of went along with that, the different sacrifices and temples and you know, the, the wonders of the world that were built and all that kind of stuff. So, that's, so he comes out of that. He comes out of Rome where they built like the Colosseum. He comes out of Rome where they have roads. It was Rome that actually invented streetlights. Kind of interesting. It was the Roman government when they conquered that when they built roads, they actually posted you know, oil lamps and things like that. It was the Roman government that made light. It was the Roman government that put patrols on their roads to stop bandits and so forth. So he comes from this like epicenter of, of uh, just kind of wild worship, and, but yet at the same time advancement and kind of a cosmopolitan background. And he goes from that and he comes to Israel, which is not that way. And in fact, it's not very impressive until Herod begins to build. Before that, for the last 800 years before Rome shows up, the, the Israelites have been conquered by Rome. They've been conquered by uh, Greece. They've been conquered by the Persians. For the last 800 years, barring the Maccabean Revolt, which I think lasted 80, uh, 80 years-ish, something like that, 70 years, they were enslaved to someone else. Does that make sense? They were, they were serving someone else, which is actually going to play into some of the, the dialogue that we see between these two people. So he comes, he converts to Judaism. Obviously, he has some sort of encounter with Jehovah because you don't come out of a, com, a cosmopolitan advanced civilization as a person of honor and wealth and then go to Israel completely defeated and destroyed and go, yeah, I'm all about your God, Right? That's not how it worked in the day. People had localized gods, all sorts of stuff. But we're doing a whole chapter, so we're not going into that. So, the, the, so this Roman, he shows up, he's here, he converts to Judaism, he converts to following Jehovah, and in that, he's a kind person. He, there's fruit being born in his life. He's observing the law of God, which if you read the law of God, really what it shows is the heart of God. right? Things that you... There, there, there are many laws in the Jewish law that you and I would probably absolutely reject. Laws of what you had to give. Laws, you know, uh, my, I mention them all the time because they're my two favorite. You had to harvest your field in a circle uh, because you had to leave the corners of your field uh, unharvested for the widows and the fatherless. In a, in a time where there's no uh, government help at all, government help doesn't exist, every single person with land and farm had to leave for the, 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 the less fortunate people. On top of that, when you were harvesting, if you dropped, like let's say you're pulling a piece of corn off and you drop it, it was against God's law to pick it up. You had to leave it. And again, it was so that the widows and the fatherless could go through and pick up the corn and take it. If someone was traveling, if you and I were traveling and, they, and we went through somebody else's field, you couldn't take a bag with you, but you could just pull from their corn and eat it while you went to their field. As Americans, we'd be like, you're wrong, God. This is my land, and they don't get to eat off it. But that was God's way. He said, this is how it's going to work. If you were walking down the street and you saw your worst enemy, the person you hate the most, and his donkey is in a ditch, you had to help it out. You had to stop and help it out. If you didn't, your worst enemy could go to the local elders and say, this person passed me by and they didn't help me. And there would be, there'd be consequences for that, financial consequences for you. So God's heart, God's law is to love and to help all the time. That's what it's about. So this centurion has adopted that and is moving forward with that. So here he is, he's praying, and an angel appears before him, and it's, it's pretty impressive. He's scared to death. So here's this battle-hardened centurion. He sees an angel in verse 4, and it says, and he, star he stared at him in terror 
and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. So as this person is honoring God, God sends an angel to him. And this is noteworthy because Jesus has already come, he's already paid the price for sin, and he's already ascended. And this guy's kind of still back in Judaism. Does that make sense? He's still back in following Jehovah and the law and giving alms and doing these things. And so God appears to him in his prayer time through an angel, a messenger, and says, here's what you need to do. You need to send to this guy named Simon who's going by the name Peter in Joppa, and you need to send to him and have him come to you. And I want to kind of make a note of this because this is where the basis, I think, is we want to kind of the lens we want to look through this whole chapter. That is incredibly inefficient, isn't it? Why does an angel, why doesn't the angel say, well, here's the deal. Jehovah came in the form of Jesus, took on flesh, died at the cross, rose again from the dead. You need to trust him. Boom, here's the Holy Spirit. Merry Christmas. Why does an angel supernaturally come and his message is, you should get Peter? Because in my mind, I'm like, why? You're there. You're already there. Just two sentences. You're good. Eject back to heaven. Peter doesn't have to go anywhere. He can still hang out and do his thing. See, so many times God's plans for us make no sense. Because he's way smarter than us. And what we're going to see is, here's this guy in Caesarea, miles away from Joppa. He's praying. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Peter is also about to start praying. A day later, he's going to get hungry. He asks for some food. In the meantime, he goes up and he prays. And we'll read that. But the point is, is that here's this way where God could have just supernaturally... Like, if you ever wonder, like, why do we have James? Why don't we have Jesus? He'd be way better. If we could just have, like, the, the, the Jesus stream right from heaven, and we could just stream Jesus, wouldn't that be way better? I feel like it would be way better. And then we could just be like, Jesus, what do you want? Just tell me exactly what I should do right now. Jesus fix every single problem right now. It could be, it's, it's on our half, it feels like I, that would be way better. It would be more efficient. I feel like it would be more helpful. I feel like there could be greater faith. You'd be like, well, Jesus is right there. See, there see him in the background, the angels flying around, and there's that. But he doesn't do it that way. Instead, he sends a supernatural angel that scares this guy half to death just by what he looks like, and he says, you need to go get a person. And the, the crazy thing that God does is he uses people not like uses them up, but he uses people and their giftings, us and who we are, to accomplish his kingdom. It's always been that way. There's actually, I think, quite a few things that could go wrong with the purely divine intervention plan. Number one, we're told in the last days that Satan himself, when his Antichrist comes forward, he'll call down fire from heaven. He'll be incredibly... Uh, attractive in the sense that people will flock to him. That, that everything he says earthwise will make a lot of sense. That he'll do miracles. The scripture says that the Antichrist will take a head wound, a mortal head wound, and rise from that wound, survive the wound. In a sense, he'll die and be raised again. Sound familiar? 
See that Satan can and often does mimic divine stuff. And oftentimes, he just, just having just experiences can be very unhealthy. See, instead, we have the Scripture, inspired by God, written to us. And again, for time's sake, we won't go into it. There's a great book. It's called Can We Believe, Still Believe the Bible? Written by Craig Blomberg. And I haven't read everything Craig Blomberg's put out. But if you're a YouTuber, you can YouTube Craig Blomberg. He's a cool guy. He actually uh, was involved with the translation of the NIV. He was involved with the translation of the uh, ESV, what we're re I'm reading from this morning. And he traces back the roots of how the Scripture was written. And it's very reliable. I know that somewhere, some places, there's biology teachers out there, and they read a pamphlet once, and that pamphlet says, the Bible's been translated so many times, it's just not reliable. That's not even how the Bible is translated. It's not like we took the, like some translation of like the just the Textus Receptus or just Byzantine text or just Alexandrian text, and somebody grabbed one little sheet and like wrote it down. And was like, there you go. Oh, you're talking about centuries of labor from all the texts, comparatively 5,000-ish scraps of text that were meticulously poured over. And when you look at like Jewish. Uh, like the Old Testament, for example, and how they, the scribes and how they worked. If you made one mistake on the end of a scroll, like you didn't dab your pen and an ink spot fell on it, they threw it away, they burned it. It was thrown away. We're talking meticulousness to translate this. So we have something here and uh, delivered us through, through the Holy Spirit, through human beings that has stood the, the test of time. And just rather, you know, to going beyond experience and all this, not to mention with divine experience, secondly, we can all feel differently. Divine experience from the beginning was, was uh, negated by some. Remember when Jesus was baptized and the, the dove, like, that says lights, it, it ends up on his shoulder, and then there's a, 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 a voice that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You guys remember, what was the commentary from some people around? They said, that was thunder. Did you guys hear the thunder? The weirdest thunder I've ever heard, because that's my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, but clearly that was thunder. So there's, there's easy, miracles can be dismissed by people, and they happen all the time. I don't know if you've noticed this, but human beings, we're incredible at denying the obvious. And we're incredible at just kind of deceiving ourselves about stuff, especially when we, we don't want it to be true. So anyway, God's plan from the beginning always has been to involve human beings in what he's doing. Verse 9, we're going to see this, especially because it works in Peter's life, and in the centurion and his family's life. Verse 9, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So you kind of have that movie feel where it's like, the next day, they're on their journey. So just imagine, like, scene one, they're walking down the road. Meanwhile, cut back to what Peter's doing. He's on a housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So it's about noon. And he becomes hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, 
For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 17, but while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen uh, might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And we'll stop there. So meanwhile, these guys are walking to the house. Peter is hungry and apparently asks for something to eat, and then he goes on top uh, of the house to pray or whatever, and he, he ends up kind of in this trance. And you could probably dismiss it as low blood sugar, except that these guys show up and God's working something out here. So he goes into this trance and he has a vision. And God from heaven lowers it. It's like a giant sheet and it comes down in front of him and there's all the animals. Remember in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, you could only eat certain animals. You couldn't eat pigs. You couldn't eat lizards. There were all sorts of different, it had to have a clove. I, I don't honestly remember them all, but it's like it had to have the cloven hoof. It couldn't, yeah, because you couldn't eat horses, so it couldn't have the whole hoof. But there's a whole thing that you went by on what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. And, and, and there were even laws about, you know, if you were eating goat, you couldn't eat a baby goat and boil it in its mother's milk, you know, things like that. There is in the Levitical law of how it was laid out. But now Jesus has fulfilled the law. So what happens is Peter sees this vision and God tells him, kill and eat. And I want to make some side notes here. Number one... This is showing that Christ fulfilled the law. Now, there's a main message to this, and the main message is that Gentiles are not unclean, and we'll talk about that. But number one, Jesus has fulfilled the law, and as a Jew, God is showing you can eat what you like. Number two, killing animals for food is not murder. And just as a side note, if you go back to the Ten Commandments, when people say, well, it says, thou shalt not kill... The Hebrew word there is, thou shalt not murder. It's not you shall never kill anything. It's that you shall not murder human beings. And I'm not saying this to like stick it to vegetarians or something like that. That's not my heart. I, you know, if you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. Like I, I, don't, I don't have a thing about that at all. And I don't, we, we shouldn't because the scripture doesn't. Now, if you begin to teach, we're told in the, and when, when uh, Paul writes to Timothy, I believe it is, it might be Titus, he does say that in the last days, one of the teachings of demons will be to forbid to eat meat. So I suppose if, if you want to be vegetarian, God bless you in that. And I, there's no condemnation in that or nothing wrong with that. But if you begin to teach others that they should not eat meat, be careful because it's referred to as a teaching of demons in, in, in the New Testament. So again, have your own faith. Like you know, Romans 14 says, if you have faith, have it to yourself. Enjoy meat, don't enjoy meat, let's not throw it in anybody's face. But the point being is that God is saying, number one, the law was fulfilled in Christ because now you, the, the, that ceremonial part of the law is not needed anymore. And you're welcome to eat what you'd like to eat. Uh, number two, killing animals and eating is in the will of God. It's an offering that God has for us. We should do it humanely. I'm not talking about the, the scripture in the Proverbs say, the righteous man regards his beast. Humane killing of animals is important. We're not, we're not called to make animals suffer or something like that. And lastly, this is a metaphor, and it leads to the truth that he's communicating to Peter. Now, Peter doesn't understand it. We'll talk more about what it means in a moment. But notice in verse 17 at the end, or excuse me, what God says there in verse 15, he says, he came to him a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common common or unclean or unholy, the idea of, of regular use. 
So the message of the metaphor of the sheet is when God says that something is clean, you don't dare say that it is not clean. You, want to, you don't, don't call it common or unclean or something that you shouldn't have. Which to us, we're like, what the heck? What's going on here? Because verse 17, it says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, he does not understand this. The vision comes three times. How, I, I mean, think about that for a second. Three times the vision comes. Three times, well, I guess total was six times, but three times God says each message to him. Kill and eat. And then he says, don't call unclean what I have called clean. So three times this happens. Three times the vision, three times Peter does not understand what it means. It might be easier for us to understand, so you have Jews and Gentiles, right? And for a Jew, a Jew is an Israeli, somebody who was born of Jewish blood following Jehovah that, that of their nation, Whereas a Gentile to a Jew is everywhere else, everyone else. Like, we're Gentiles. So you have Jews and Gentiles. There were two biblical classifications of people. The Jews hated the Gentiles. Why would they hate Gentiles? Well, maybe because for the last 800 years at least, and there's other wars that occur, they have been dominated by every Gentile nation that's come by. And not just dominate, I mean, we're talking about, and for example, in the Maccabean Revolt, some of the things that occurred to, uh, to the Israelis from Rome in, in recompense, and again, when Rome in 70 AD finally go in, and uh, again, that's after this point, but you can, the demonstration is there, the illustration, that when Rome in 70 AD, when they trap a bunch of Jews into the temple, they, they burn them alive. I mean, they, they, they weren't just like, as if like Canada came down and life just kept going the way it is. It wasn't like, you know, something mild. These people are, they're, they're raped. They're taken from their lands. It was Babylonians. It was customary for Nebuchadnezzar and other Babylonian leaders to essentially like take over an area. They take half the populace and they just pull you out. Part of you go back to be slaves in Babylonia, and part of you just go to another nation so that you'll merge and you'll kind of create multi, like a, a similar religion, essentially assimilating the people in the whole area. So just radical atrocities have been happening for centuries to the Jewish people. So it's, it, it shouldn't be too big of a surprise for us that they didn't really like non-Jews. They weren't really excited about these other people, especially... The Romans, the latest of a long list of offenders to dominate them and to, to control them and ultimately, in the end, disperse them and destroy them. Not completely, but in, in big ways. So it's kind of, it's like for us, we're like, well, what's the big deal? Just go to this Roman guy's house. Like, why is there this big vision? Why? Because they weren't, even, they weren't supposed to do that. They weren't supposed to eat with Gentiles and they hated Gentiles. So Peter is completely perplexed. He doesn't know what's happening. He did, why am I having this vision? What's he talking about? Don't call unclean things that are clean. And he goes on. He says, behold, uh, I'm sorry. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. 
And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to bear, uh, excuse me, and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone for, uh, of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So a couple things to note here. Number one, Peter realizes what the vision means when the men ask him to come with him. Did you catch that in verse 28? The heavenly vision given by God to Peter meant nothing to him until he was able to apply it practically with people around him. This is super important. Let me say that again. The only way that Peter was to properly understand and apply the heavenly vision that God had given him was that when there were other people around for him to apply it to. The whole like Lone Ranger Christianity thing, it doesn't work. You can kind of have the me and God wilderness experience, and that's fine. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody. But when you're not around in some capacity, and I'm not talking about people not coming here because of masks. I'm not sorry, that's not what I'm saying. But if you're not around Christians, if you're not interacting with Christians, then the heavenly vision, the things that God is speaking to you about, will not for the most part, come to the full flourishing that he has for you. Because the church involves and revolves around, obviously, Jesus as our head and our leader, but around our ministry to one another. Ephesians 4.16 tells us, after a whole list of spiritual gifts and what God has done and how he gifted people, it's concluded with this in Ephesians 4.16. It says that the whole body builds itself up in love as every joint supplies, joint, not like, but like joint, one of these, right? As every joint supplies, the body builds itself up. In other words, there's hands, there's feet, there's eyeballs, there's all sorts of different parts of the body, and each part complements itself. That, you know, without an arm with no hand is at a disadvantage, right? A leg with no foot is at a disadvantage. A brain with no extremities is at a disadvantage, how we interact with one another and how we practice and receive what God is telling us to each other actually decides, in part, the growth of people around us. In other words, when we reserve ourselves, people around us suffer. When we say no to God, people around us suffer. You know, this issue for Peter is going to be almost, I can't call it a lifetime issue, but it's going to be an issue that comes up over and over again. Years later, Paul writes in Galatians, and he says, hey, when I went to Jerusalem, there had been some, uh, or not in Jerusalem, where's he? I can't remember, but men from Jerusalem, he says, I had to stand up to Peter to his face in front of the church. 
what had happened was men came from James, a pastor, uh, the Lord's half-brother, came from James who was pastoring in Jerusalem. They came out of Jerusalem. They came to where Peter was at and Barnabas were at, and they began to basically preach Jewish law and to say, no, Jews should not have essentially contact or fellowship with Gentiles. This is way into the New Testament. This is like 30, 40 years into the New Testament. And these messengers that come from Jerusalem, Peter kind of falls back into these old Jewish ways, and he stops eating with the Gentiles and associating with them at church. And so because of that, Paul comes into the church where Peter is at, the Apostle Peter, and says, hey, you're heaping, you're following the law. You know as well as I do that we're delivered from the law and what you're doing is wrong, Apostle Peter. And Peter has to repent. So a couple things about that. Number one, God is gracious. That here's Peter. He's going to have an issue for decades about associating with a certain set of people. It doesn't make the issue right. It doesn't make it excusable. It doesn't make it anything. But God continues to work with him. He doesn't get canceled. He doesn't get annihilated. God continues to work in Peter's life with visions and all sorts of things. Brethren, until Peter gets it right. So remember, let's, let's have mercy on one another. Let's, let's, let's have grace for each other when, when each other, we don't do the right things or say the right things. Let's have kindness for one another. And let's recognize that, that our contribution is important to each other. There's a reason why over and over again, the Bible talks about loving one another, caring about one another, ministering to one another, being gracious to one another. Things in Romans, don't judge anyone until the time. I'm not saying don't call sin, sin. I mean, if, if, if someone's in sin, then it's not, it's not wrong to go, well, that's, that's, that's morally wrong. The judgment or the moral wrong comes when we observe the sin and then we condemn the person and say, you're worthless, or you're this, or you're that, or God won't do this, or you're done, or whatever. That's where it goes into the, the, the place we shouldn't go. But how awesome that here's Peter. He's being used of the Lord. He's being blessed of the Lord. And the issue still isn't finished yet. He's still working. And you know we can take courage in that that we're works in progress. We're not making excuses for our sin. But we're works in progress. God knows who you are. He knows your, uh, you know, uh, uh, what you're like. He knows what you're going to do. He knows your failures. And yet he's still continually inviting you to be part of his solution for this world and for the church. So Peter walks in. He says, hey, you guys know I shouldn't be here, but I received this vision and now I understand the vision that I should be uh, someone who is uh, willing to meet with another nation, right? And so now, but he still says in verse 29, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask you why you sent for me. So this is interesting. Peter also went not knowing why he was going. He had received a vision. God said, hey, I want you to do this. And, and really the vision just said, hey, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Through, that was through that Gentiles were now could be essentially were could become God's people through the sacrifice of Christ, and then he says, "Hey, there's some guys here looking for you. Go with them." 
And they say, hey, there's a centurion. He's a good guy. He's a dedicated servant of of God. You're supposed to go and talk to him. So now Peter shows up again and he says, can you please uh, tell me why? So as you can see, just in the part that we read here, really, the, the Romans 8, 28 is true. That God works together, where God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That God is working on both hands of, on sides of things. That, that even sometimes when God is working, people ignore it. Anybody here ever ignored what God said to do in their life? Might have like two of us, three of us maybe? Okay. We're going to be over here having our own little hub. But, so, but seriously, all of us have said no to God. Every one of us. God has said, I would like this. And we're like, nah, I'm not super into that. I'd like you to be kind to this person. Nah, they don't really deserve that. I would like you to, you know, whatever it might be. And we've said, no. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to humble myself. Because clearly I would know better than you. So I'm going to do what I want to do. And even though we've all said no to God and we've all wrestled with those things, he has still worked out things in the situation. What do I mean? So in this situation, Peter obeys and says, yes, I'll go to these people. But later on in Galatians, imagine the hurt. Can you imagine going to a church potluck and there's kind of this section of people? I know, you know, uh, well, anyway, so you go, you go to a church potluck and there's just kind of a section of people that just kind of eat by themselves and you try to like roll up to their table and they all just get up and leave. Wouldn't that be a little awkward? You'd be like, well, leave your dessert, suckers, you know, whatever. I mean, you'd feel terrible. How many, how many people have ever heard of or experienced and, and or complained about a clickiness at a church? That's like a universal one. I don't go to that church. It's too clicky. Well, I'm not here to measure any individual church, but it feels horrible, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel terrible if you like walk into a church and no one gives a rip? As a side note, I don't think we necessarily think it through all the time that other people may also be socially awkward or have anxiety and be scared to death of us. You know, we just think, hey, I'm here. Everybody should shake my hand and tell me how great I am sometimes. We, we, we kind of go that way. But the other side is terrible too. When you, you can walk in and people, you know, whatever. I went to a pastor's conference once. I went to a pastor's conference once, and I was talking to this guy who remained nameless in a far, far away land, and he was the pastor of a church. We had just started this church, and I went to this conference, and I was like, hey, dude, yeah, yeah, I just started a church, but blah, 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 and I was like, yeah, it'd be cool, you know, we could get lunch sometime, and he was like, nah, and he just walked away, and I was kind of like, I'm going to keep my middle finger down, and I'm going to walk with God in this situation. But I was like horrified. Like I went away, I was like, honestly, my honest thought was like, screw this ministry and this pastor's conference. A big, bad pastor's conference. I just like went full flesh mode. I was like, I'm done here. Forget you guys. And I, if I continued to walk in that, then I guess it would have gotten really ugly. The point being is that Peter, in the end, in the Galatians incident, or what's, what's talked about in Galatians, cost the church. He cost the church fellowship. He cost the church unity. There would have been fallout from that. There would have been apologies that had to be made. 
in this time, in this case, it's very positive. Because as we're going to read, the whole household's going to get saved. Now, what if Peter had, and Joppa said, you know what? No. I'm not going. I saw the vision. I don't care about the vision. I'm not going to go. Guess what? Somebody else would have gone. I think one of the best quotes I ever heard, very humbling, but one of the best quotes I ever heard uh, at a pastor's conference one time was a guy, there's a whole context to it, but he said this, he goes, you're probably not the first guy or girl that God's called to do that work, you're just the first one that said yes. And I was like, no, of course I was the first one. (laughs) No, you know what, God has a lot of people to do great things. I was listening to another sermon one time. There's a guy that I, I, uh, I really enjoyed listening to. He's out of Chino Hills, California. And he was talking about, as a new believer, that he, um, and this, I'm not making any rules for anybody. This is his deal. As a new believer, God had called him to stop drinking. And so he was really wrestling against it. And like, no, I have liberty as a Christian. I'm going to have my beer. Leave me alone. And I'm, that's, that's a fine stance. Well, not the leave me alone part, but not being under the law. And so he goes to a pizza parlor, and he's, he gets a pitcher of beer, and he's eating a pizza, and he feels the Holy Spirit say, hey, you should go talk to that guy at the window. And he's like, I'm like three beers in, and I'm eating my pizza. I'm going to reek like beer, and then he's going to see my table, and you want me to go talk to this guy about you? And so he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go over there. And he said he felt the Holy Spirit say, no, go talk to that guy. And he goes, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go talk to that guy. And he says, you know what happened? I was sitting there watching him, ignoring Jesus in my life. And he said, two guys walked by, then walked back, looked in the window, came into the pizza place, whipped out a Bible and preached the gospel to him. And then they all, and he says, I don't know what happened, but they all three ended up bowing and praying together. You and I have a calling from God, and we don't want to let it go by. We don't want to let his opportunities go by. We suffer other people suffer. We've been called to work together as a body involved in God's kingdom. And this is just such a cool thing that happens where even some of the most difficult things get addressed. And God is supernaturally speaking and working on both sides. And this amazing thing comes about and, and, and these people end up getting saved. So it says there, he rose, he goes up, he says, now why am I here? Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we, all, we are all here in the presence of God to hear that you have been commanded by the Lord. And real quick, I want to address one thing, because he makes a statement here, and he says this, that the, the angel says this to them, your prayers and your alms have been remembered. So the question has to be asked, did this guy earn Peter coming to him? Because this is kind of a, this is kind of, I think, a, universal idea about Christianity, that somehow this guy prayed enough, and it's interesting because in the first, the first account, when the angel says it, that Luke gives us, the angel says, he's heard your prayers, a continual praying, not just one time he got up in the morning and he was just like, mm, God, can you come visit me, and then goes on with his day, but he has prayers, he's seeking God. 
But then it says, your alms have been noticed. That God sees this. And for time's sake, we won't go uh, super into it, but it's important to note that the alms are fruit of the heart. Remember, he's a man who fears God. He's a man who respects God, and he's a man who's praying to God. So it's not like God said, well, you finally uh, made it up to, you know, five million denarii to my house, so now I'll come and speak to you. No, the idea is that this man had a fruitful life because he was a man who had a relationship and a healthy fear of God. He knew God and he walked in that relationship and that knowledge that he had of God. When we walk in the truth that we have, God gives us more. That's, that's pretty much replete through the whole Bible. When we're honest with him, when we're walking with him, then God reveals more to us, encourages us, and does these things and gives us more opportunity. When we reserve ourselves and when we kind of move back from that, it not, should not be a surprise that the Holy Spirit's not knocking on our door every day to be a part of what he's doing because we've pulled ourselves back. In John 15, uh, he, the, and in 1 John, John writes about the fact that when we love God, when we see God for who he is, we love him, we're appreciating who he is, that we obey his commandments. And the reason we obey his commandments when we love him is because we realize as we see him that he is good and what he has for us is good. So what Cornelius is going through, it's not that he's being rewarded because he gave enough money to the synagogue or something like that. It's because his heart is in the right place and God is now revealing him greater light. It's not the law anymore. It's not the synagogue anymore. It's not the temple anymore. That was all fulfilled in Christ. And so Peter is sent to him and, and, and to give him this, this revelation about who God is. And that's what happens. He begins to uh, reveal to him. So it says there in verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Let's just, again, pause there. That is a profound statement. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. God does not care of your bloodline, your status, your 401k. He cares about none of that. He cares about you as an individual and who you are, and he has no partiality for anyone. He doesn't doesn't have partiality over the non-mentally ill or the mentally ill. He doesn't have partiality over the poor or the rich. He has no partiality. He has none. Every single human being stands or falls based on their receiving and their acceptance of him. Nothing else comes into play. And Peter comes to this point. And, and so for us, we might be able to say, oh yeah, yeah, I pretty much believe that, maybe. But for Peter to say this, he's looking at the people that conquered his country. And he says, now I understand. Going to a place where he was uncomfortable, where he could have easily been despised. You think Roman centurions on the average gave a rip about Jewish fishermen? No. Do you think they're impressed by their little boats with their little nets and their little sails that they go around on Galilee with? No. Do you think his family had any interest outside of because of God? No. And so here Peter comes to the people that oppress them. He probably wasn't doing, but I'm talking about as a whole. And says, now I understand. Because I came here. Because I got sent here by God. Now I understand that there is no partiality with God. Once again, the heavenly vision 
is only fulfilled through the experience with others. Does that make sense? Once again, we, he, Peter, the apostle Peter, saw Jesus on the mountain, transfigured into all his glory, who saw the resurrected Christ eat a fish, all the experiences he had, and yet now he understands that there's no partiality with God. Now he understands that every single human being matters. We as human beings will never fully grasp the love that, ha- that God has for each individual until we're out there obeying and loving the individual. It's just how human beings work. It cannot be communicated just through seeing angels or whatever. If we're going to be fully formed in the image of Christ, if we're going to be fully walking what God has for us, we have to be walking in obedience and we have to be walking what he called us to do. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism, that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country uh, of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day, and he made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the dead and the living. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For if they, excuse me, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, and Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter begins to preach the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel of Christ and what he's done, they believe. They trust in the message. And through their belief, the Holy Spirit starts to fall on them. And the wording there is the idea that it's, it wasn't just this one grandiose thing, but each person begins to receive the Spirit. And they begin to praise God, and there's this transformation. Again, by walking with God, God is unifying the church. Why didn't God just use an angel? Why did the angel come and say, go get Peter? Because it will be Peter and Paul later on in Acts 15 that come back to Jerusalem and testify and say, no, we were there. The Holy Spirit fell on Gentiles. Notice it says that the brethren, these are Jews that came with Peter from Joppa, that they see this thing happening and they're shocked by it. They're like, how in the world are these guys receiving the Holy Spirit? It'd be like the equivalent of, and I I don't want to get canceled or something, but the equivalent of like a bunch of Al-Qaeda cruising in here. And we're like, Jesus is Lord. And And they just go, yes. And they begin to speak in the Spirit. We'd probably be like, what's happening? How is this happening? That's, it's, I mean, just think of like, if in World War II, if you all of a sudden had Hitler, and he was like, yeah, I mean, just think of the most wild dichotomy you could think of. 
And that's what you get with Romans and Jews. That's what you get with centurions and Jewish fishermen. The most wild opposing forces, and then this God accepts him and says, yes, this is my servant. This is my, my child now. So take courage again. Anyone can get saved. Anyone can be filled with the Holy Spirit. God's house is big enough for everyone. It's interesting because God says, he says twice, once in the New and once in the Old Testament, he says, I'm not willing that any man should perish. God wants no one to, to reject him. He wants no one to perish. There's never been a human being on the planet that has ever existed where God said, I want that person to perish. We have a list, most of us. God's never had anyone. He said, I'm not willing. Now, interesting that his will is thwarted, right? Because people perish all the time. But God's purpose will never be thwarted. In other words, he is building his church, and he is building his kingdom. And in the the biblical metaphor, Jesus will have a bride in the church. So his purpose will never be thwarted. But his will is thwarted on the daily. And it's thwarted by the the people out there, and and sometimes, unfortunately, by us too, by saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not willing for that. So I encourage you. What's the whole point of all of this? God is working in situations. He's working on your side. He's working on other people's side. Don't become impatient. It's It's a, how should I say this? It's inappropriate for us to become impatient with each other. Because all, for most of us, I can't speak for you, but for many of us, myself included, God has been extremely patient with us. Things we haven't dealt with for years. And yet sometimes we come along and we see something that somebody else is doing, maybe six months go by, and we're just like, what's your problem? What are you doing you should be more like me. I'm faithful or whatever, however it goes. Let's be patient with one another. Let's be kind to one another. And you know what? Just know that God is working. And sometimes things aren't happening because we're saying no to God. And sometimes things aren't happening because other people are saying no to God. But we can still continue to pray and to walk in what God shows us. And the more we say yes and the more we invite him in, the greater things that we're going to get to be part of. Jesus said this. He said, you know what? Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth, where rust corrupts nor moth eats. We want to be those that have treasure in heaven. That might sound like mercenary. It might sound like, what are you, you know, what's going on here? But if Jesus says, hey, you're, you're going to really want these rewards I have. For me, I'll be honest. I'm like, ah, do I really want heavenly rewards? Honestly, like not burning eternally and being able to be with God, I feel like that's good enough. But Jesus said, no, you really want these. You want what I have for you. And I want to bless you when you listen to me and when you do great things. So I just pass that on to you. Let's pursue the Lord. So we have communion today. Um, we have a, uh, I'm not sure how we're doing it. How are we doing it, Steve? Yeah. So you're going to hand it out? Okay, so they're going to hand it out to you guys because we're trying to have some semblance of compliance. And uh, so they'll, they'll uh, be gloved up, masked up, handing out the communion. And, um, but uh, feel free to take it and 
partake whenever you'd like. We're not necessarily going to do it together. It's, it's for you to have a conversation with the Lord. But he does say, he says, you know, when you take the bread, you remember his body. And when you take the cup, you remember his blood in the New Testament. That, that Christ's life was given for us. The scripture says that. It's not something we make up to feel good about ourselves. That Christ literally came from heaven, took on flesh because he loves you and he cares about you and he has great things for you. And he says, when you eat the bread, remember that. Not remember condemnation. Remember what you did to me on the tree. Remember what you did. That's not the idea. The idea is, remember that I came for you, that my body, I gave it for you. And he says, the cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. No more is it the law. No more is it do and live to demonstrate our sin and what we're like. But instead, he says, when you remember my blood shed from Calvary, you remember the new deal, the new covenant with God that I paid for your sin and that you're right with God because of what I've done. So I encourage you, as you partake of the, uh, of the cup and of the bread, remember the Lord loves you. Remember what he's done for you. And the, the last thing that he encourages, that Paul encourages there as he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, look, let a person examine themselves and then let them eat. And the point he's making is that, yes, we're remembering Jesus. We're going to remember him and that we're acknowledging that he's coming back for us. We're, we're acknowledging the body. We're acknowledging the new covenant. But let's examine ourselves. And if there's something in our lives where we're saying no, if there's something in our lives where we're saying, you don't get this, this is mine, then take a moment, pray about it, confess it, ask the Lord to work in your heart. Begin to move forward in walking with God, and you won't be disappointed. So why don't we pray, and then we'll have a couple of worship songs and some uh, communion. Father, thank you for your loving kindness and your mercy. Lord, thanks that you love us. Lord, thank you for examples like Peter and Cornelius and the folks that are willing to walk both ways and all uh, that you're wanting to do. And I pray you would continue to uh, build our church, build where we're at, and really all the uh, gospel churches on the peninsula. I pray you would be blessing those Christians today, be near them. Lord, I pray for us as Christians that we would be those that are um, walking with you, saying yes to you, being a blessing to you. And Lord, that we be um, lights to our community, healing balm to our community. Help us to have uh, divine interaction with you and then be able to pass that on to others. Lord, you're very good. We appreciate you in Jesus' name. Amen.